don't have time to get a suit or jacket dry cleaned and it's not made of a delicate fabric like silk, you can spray it with vodka to remove smells. It won't do anything for stains, but in many cases it works just like Febreze. Want to learn more awesome tips that will improve your life? Keep listening. On this episode, we learned whether it's a good idea to fix your flickering lights yourself. The curious idiot stops by with a question about his cell phone, and we test out a pair of pants that could help you smuggle grapes. Because they make you run faster. God, you guys are gross. I'm Jacqueline Detweiler, and this is the most useful podcast ever. We have with us Pat Porzio, who is the HVAC manager for Russo Brothers in East Hanover, New Jersey. Welcome, Pat. What is it you do out there? We do all sorts of heating, air conditioning, plumbing, heating, you name it, pretty much everything from lawn sprinklers to boilers to air conditioning. We can pretty much take care of it for you. Okay. So what we're going to do is play a game called You or Me, which if it were really about me, the answer would be always you because I shouldn't be installing any of these things. But let's imagine that I'm a little bit handier as uh, many of our readers are. And I'm going to ask you basically, is this something that I can do myself safely? Or should I call either an electrician or a plumber or uh, you, basically? Okay. And let's start with an easy one. I flip the switch on my light and the light does not work. You or me? You. Me. Okay. How would I fix that? First, check the light bulb to oh, make sure no. that the, you actually, the, the bulb is working. Then you could check the circuit breaker, make sure you have power going up to that circuit. And one of the things I always recommend to people is that they properly label their circuit breaker panel so that they can quickly identify which breakers it is that they're looking for. Um, and the final thing is you could just have a bad light switch. And again, that is something that most homeowners with a fair amount of technical knowledge would be able to handle on their cell. Okay. All right. Now, what if my lights are flickering all the time? That could be a couple of different things. That could certainly be um, a you or a me. The U could be something in the circuit that's drawing a lot of power, and you would be able to identify that. Maybe it's a bad refrigerator or an air conditioner that's starting and stopping quite frequently, and that's something that you could investigate on your own. If that all fails, then it would definitely be a me because you'd probably have a, a loose wire or a loose connection somewhere in the circuit that would require quite a bit of investigating to find. Right. Okay. So that brings me to my next one. Uh, what about installing a new ceiling fan? A ceiling fan, that could be a you, but it would probably be a me. Okay. One of the big issues with a ceiling fan is the weight. You want to make sure that the box that's supporting that fan is strong enough. And again, that would be something that uh, would require a little bit more investigation to make sure that it's going to properly support the weight of the fan. Okay. So you said you install ACs. If I want to put in my AC... This is a window unit. I don't need you, do I? Um, again, that's a you or me. An air conditioner that draws a lot of power might need a new circuit. In that case, um, it would definitely be a me. If it's a smaller air conditioner that doesn't take a lot of power, that's definitely a you. Okay. So you're saying that I shouldn't be putting in circuits. That sounds wise. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I want to do that. <laughs> I, my, my rule of thumb is anytime that you want to do any electrical work in your home or any kind of work, if you have to buy materials... Typically, that's going to mean that a permit is going to be required, um, that the work is extensive enough for a permit, and most areas allow homeowners to take out their own permits so that you can take out a permit, but it does mean that an inspector is going to come by and make sure that all of the work meets the code. So, um, again, that, that's definitely depending on your level of sophistication with this kind of work. You could certainly do 
uh, a lot of the work yourself, but always get it inspected to make sure that it's safe. So here's one that actually happens to me a lot. I live in an old apartment, and your circuit breakers just trip all the time. Um, is there an easy fix? Like, can I fix that? Or no? Should I just call my, my landlord and or and have him call you? <laughs> exactly. That's definitely not a you. Um, <laughs> circuit, breaker, circuit breakers that are tripping um, are typically mean you either got an overloaded circuit or a bad circuit breaker. Um, an overloaded circuit means you have too much stuff plugged into it, so that would be a U. Um, but the, as far as a, a circuit breaker that keeps tripping, if it's a bad circuit breaker, means you have to open up the circuit breaker panel, and that's, that's really never a U. I'm going to stick to installing switch plates. I'm pretty good at that. That's pretty safe. <laughs> We have our curious idiot back here, Kevin Dupsick and Alex George. Um, this one, you got a lot of flack for this one. I, you think I didn't for the last ones? That's you pretty much always get a lot of flack for them. Yeah, but I think it's because this one is like such a specific failing that yeah. it just makes me sound even more idiotic than usual. Um, and in fact, I don't, I don't exactly know how to describe this without just giving a scenario. So, like, I am a frequenter of Starbucks, and often when I'm there, I will connect to their wireless network on my phone. And they're all, every Starbucks, it's always called the same thing. It's like ATT Wi-Fi. And when you connect, you have, to, you have to then like open a browser and say like, I agree to the terms and conditions to go on the internet. So when you just connect at first, you're not actually, you don't get any data, you're not connected. So what happens is like, I'm going someplace new and I need to use Google Maps to get directions and I happen to be near a Starbucks and my phone automatically connects to that Wi-Fi network. But because I'm using Google Maps and not like the Safari browser, I can't tell it I accept terms and conditions. And then even though it, I'm connected, I can't get anything. Like the maps won't load. And I just think my phone should be smarter than that. You're completely right. Actually, this is something that should be the theme for all the curious edit things, especially with technology. It's honestly, it's not you, it's the device. They should think these things through. And I think you're completely right about this. That means a lot to me. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> This happens to me at airports, actually. Yeah, yeah, that's another place we get free Wi-Fi. Yeah, yeah. in airports. Uh, so there's a name for that thing. It's called a portal, which is like when you go to a hotel, it says, "Would you like to put in your you put in your room number or whatever?" Oh, right. It's yeah. a thing that comes up in your browser that makes that you authenticate. Okay. And it's a pain because we have so many devices that need to connect to Wi-Fi, and you can't like for an Amazon Echo to be set up with that. You can't really do that. It's a pain to set that up. Um, I never even thought about that part of it. I've only yeah. thought about the Google Maps in front of the Starbucks scenario. Yeah. Basically, what the phone is doing is saying, I'm getting a Wi-Fi signal, but that Wi-Fi signal, the transponder that's there, the router, is not getting any data coming through to it. Mm -hmm. The thing that is a pain, and it should know to do this automatically, but it doesn't, if you're not, like, if you're not in a place where you know you have Wi-Fi, turn it off. Like, fl yeah. slide the little thing up and turn it off completely. That saves battery because it's not looking around for a Wi-Fi signal. Um, and then you also kind of avoid this scenario right here. So it knows to use data. Yeah. Does it just constantly look, by the way? Yeah, more or less. That's kind of what it is, like an old sonar kind of a thing. But it's, and it's doing the same for Bluetooth, that kind of a thing, too. But it's a pain when you leave, you know, flick on, flick off. But that usually, that'll solve the problem. What about the, like, forget this network thing? Because that's an option, too, right? And it seems like, I don't know, if I'm going to go to Starbucks all the time, that would be annoying. But maybe in some places that would be useful. That just tells your phone, just like, don't jump on this network automatically anymore. Correct. Is yeah. that right? Yeah. And I, I always I have that for all of them except for like my house and here. Basically, computers run into problems when they try and figure out, they guess wrong about what you're trying to do. Because yeah. what it's trying to do is say like, <laughs> okay, you're here a lot, so I'm going to make your life easier for you. And it's, you know, 
it's uh, then it ends up making it actually it makes the wrong call and doesn't figure it out for you. Because this has happened like the I mean I've had iPhones forever and I feel like this is always like why can't it just say oh we're connected to an, a Wi-Fi network but it's been five seconds and we haven't gotten anything. But wait, I have one more question for you though. Yeah. So you said that you normally just turn off Wi-Fi unless you're someplace where you know you want to use it. Does that increase the odds of you like going over your data limit for the month on your phone or is it like just probably so negligible because you're not going to like stream video unless you have Wi-Fi? It's negligible. Yeah, unless you're watching an entire series on your phone or something like that. And typically yeah. then, especially here in New York where data signals get they get messed up by the buildings so frequently, you're not going to use it so much that you're going to see like a huge spike in your phone bill or anything. Yeah. The other thing too, I have to say this as like the kind of overprotective parent is <laughs> free Wi-Fi at airports and everything is like that's the a very very easy way for people to steal your stuff. Like you can basically see what somebody else is seeing on their laptop if they have it open at Starbucks. It's a risky kind of a thing to do. So ideally, if you can avoid doing banking or anything like sensitive like that, try not to do it. Um, I'm also a huge fan of airplane mode. I think that yeah, yeah. I just like downloading everything when I can on Wi-Fi and then not using, uh, making sure that you're absolutely not using data that way too. Is there any way to protect yourself from that kind of thing? Like I know I was in a Starbucks one time and this guy was like. Uh, he was like, I, I can see, you know, are you this, are you this woman? Cause I can see all this, this woman's nudie photos on her computer. And I was like, are you looking for them or do they just show up? Like, what do you, can I like click, don't show my photos to people? Like, what do you was do? that what like a do? shared folder or something you think? No, it's, uh, you can do this. There's this technique where you basically, uh, get. It wasn't me by the way. Was it <laughs> just asking for a friend? No, no, it was somebody, <laughs> it was somebody else. This, this person I know. <laughs> Sometimes people go into places with free Wi-Fi and they buy these devices that look like, like they'll call it ATT1 Wi-Fi, and then that'll bait people into connecting to it, and then they can steal their stuff mm. based on that. Oh man! So they, these places with free Wi-Fi. All right. If you, so if you're gonna, if you want to connect to them, if you work for some a big corporation, you probably have access to something called a VPN. It's a virtual yeah, private yeah. network. We have it, I think. Uh, but if you don't, you can use one of these. There's one called Tunnel Bear that you use for your uh, That's the iPhone app that I use. There's another one called Disconnect that you use that. Basically, what it's doing is making your computer appear as if it's outside the country or in a different region. Like, it's it's drawing uh, data through a different place. Like, it's you know, looking yeah. like it's in Toronto or something like that. But it's actually just using numbers and data to scramble it kind of like that. And that way, you actually, you're kind of protected from access for something like that. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, public Wi-Fi beware. Uh, but Kevin, you're exactly right that this is an, a very annoying feature. Chalk one up for the curious idiot. One for the little guys. Yeah. Roy, welcome back. Yeah, uh, thanks, Jackie. So we were talking the other day in the office, and we were trying to figure out the difference between a drill and an impact driver. Ah. Because they seem the same to me. <laughs> yeah. Well, they're they're they're. They're uh, they're close cousins. Let's put it that way. Um, and actually, you know, there's a fair amount of confusion about all of these drill-like devices today because there's there's several different classifications, and impact drivers uh, are one of them. And okay. that's a fairly new that's a fairly new tool. I mean, that you know, when I was in construction, they didn't even exist. Oh, everything was a drill then. Yeah, everything was a drill, uh, just a, a rotary tool that drove a drill bit. And then they came out with a battery-operated drill that they soon figured out made a great, like, power screwdriver. And so then it became a drill driver. Okay, so one that can 
turn a screw is a drill driver. Correct. Okay. Now, especially that's especially true in that they equipped these new cordless drills. They equipped them with a chuck that would um, stop the the dr- uh, screw driving capability when a certain amount of force was reached. So oh. that that would prevent you from either driving the screw too far or snapping the head off. Okay. And that's that was really okay. Now this tool is perfected. And, it, and it's been known ever since as a, as a drill driver. Well, now, the drill driver splits its mission between drilling and driving, obviously. Okay, and you just change the bit to do that. Exactly. Okay. So along comes uh, a higher torque tool that now adds a percussive or impact uh, uh, feature, let's okay. just say, to it. Uh, that is um, an impact driver. Okay, so what does the percussive thing do? What well, it's, do? it's um, what people have noticed, and this goes back to air tools, sometimes combining torque with a, an impact motion is more effective than just a straight... Um, but so instead of just moving in circles, it also, like, pushes forward. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, th- there's a qualified yes here. Um, <laughs> one, one difference with impact drivers, as opposed to the drill driver, is that there's no clutch setting. The the tool itself is much, much higher torque, and it's designed to drive the wide variety of threaded fasteners that people are driving today. Okay. In the past, it used to be there there were two or only three common fasteners, a sheet metal screw of some kind, a screw for driving into sheet metal, a wood screw, Mm -hmm. and a lag screw, which is like a a wood screw on steroids. (laughs) But, But with the drill driver... Manufacturers have started coming out with more aggressive fasteners that drive more quickly, don't need a pilot hole. The pilot hole is the the hole you make first Mm -hmm. prior to driving. And so it seemed like um, maybe there was an optimum way to drive all of these these new fasteners, these new classes of fasteners, and that is what gave rise to the impact driver. It has, the let's say, the torque of an air tool, Mm -hmm. but it's in a cordless it's a battery-operated tool. It's a cordless tool. Okay. All I feel right. like I opened a can of worms here. This is Well, it is kind of a can of worms <laughs> in that... Now, there's another advantage with impact drivers, too. They're very compact. Okay. There's no, there's no um, what's called the chuck. You don't have to tighten okay. a, a chuck around a drill bit. Can you picture that? Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I, I think I, there's like a... Um, Almost like a little claw hand yeah, they're, in they're, a drill that like... Correct, correct. They, uh, the claws are called the, the jaws. They're like a vice. Yep. And they actually, it's a circular vice yeah. is, is oh, what it is. Okay. And so that tightens down on the drill bit or drive bit. Well, you don't have to do that with an impact driver. They're meant for speed, uh, both of driving and for changing the bit out. Okay. So you just take one bit out, put another one in. Now... There's uh, there's a caveat here. Oh no, it gets more complicated. <laughs> yeah, it gets slight, only slightly more compli- complicated. Impact drivers are hard on the bit that you're driving. Okay. So there are impact rated bits that you're supposed to be using. They last longer and they're actually safer. They're not gonna. They're less likely to snap and fly off. Okay. So you're supposed to use impact rated bits. And to sort of confuse it with the drill driver, you can now get drill bits to use in these. Oh. Impact-rated drill bits with a hex shank, and you just press those in, oh. and you can, yeah, you can go up to, I don't know, you know whatever, 5 16 3 eighths of an inch, not a very large so or deep like, hole. So it's like a drill 
started being able to drive screws, and then we made a whole new tool just for driving screws, and then we turned it into a drill. <laughs> That's exactly right. This, why do we do these things? Well, it, it's all in the name of efficiency. <laughs> uh, let's put it that way. Now, I'll just leave you with this thought. There are other tools, uh, such as hammer drills. They're also percussive. They have an impact, uh, a striking feature. Okay. They're meant for drilling into masonry, and there's a stage up from hammer drills, which are called rotary hammers. Oh, so, and that's what you use to drill into brick. Yeah, brick, concrete, concrete block. So that's 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 it, really. You know, you start out with a drill, a basic, you know, sort of uh, rotary drilling tool. Then you have a drill driver, impact driver, hammer drill, mm-hmm. and then rotary hammer. So you're moving. It's kind of an order of uh, increased. Uh, increased torque and, okay. and also impact ability. Okay. Uh, when you're into rotary hammers, that's really an industrial tool. So, yeah, that's it. I mean, that's the full spectrum of drilling driving. They don't all have the same mechanism. They don't all use the same bits. I don't even honestly. know if we can get into that. Yeah, no, let's, <laughs> we'll, we'll bypass that. So for this week's testing table, we have Kelly Starrett, who is the co-founder of San Francisco CrossFit and MobilityWad.com. Uh, and has co-written several fitness books, including his latest, Deskbound, which came out this week. Uh, welcome, Kelly. Thank you very much. And we also have Kevin Dupsick, who has been wearing some stupid pants. Yeah, uh, that's a pretty apt description. <laughs> um, so they're they're from this company called Physiclo. They're called, so this is the, they really came up with a creative name here, Compression Shorts for Men with Resistance. Um, <laughs> they could go, I mean, what would it, they can't call them like... Tight pants, pants? I don't know. There's a lot of possible names that they, that they just missed. Oh, come on. Um, but they're basically, they're kind of like your standard compression shorts. And they also make tights, actually, that are full length. Okay. Um, but the thing that's different is that they have these built-in, like, rubber strips that really constrict over, theoretically, over key muscle groups. So, um, actually, one of our other editors told me about them, and he said, like, the way it was pitched to him is it's kind of like how baseball players put, like, a donut on the end of the bat when they're practicing, and then they take it off and they swing, and now their bat feels so much lighter they can swing really hard. So the idea is that you kind of have, like, a resistance band workout built into your shorts. Um, So I'm training for the Brooklyn Half Marathon, which is about a month away, and so I've worn these, I think, probably for for five different runs that I've gone on so far of different lengths, and uh, they're pretty uncomfortable and the most the most <laughs> difficult pair of shorts to put on I have ever experienced um so just 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 to start from that uh Kelly what do you what do you think about have you heard about these pants well I'll tell you what start back and say that compression is a good idea when we have people post-training and you can't do a lot of movement to clear your lymphatics compression is a very valuable solution to kind of keep the tissues healthy and normal. So that, that's fantastic. What you will notice is that the fastest people on earth do not run in tights. They run in short shorts. <laughs> and one of the things that, to note is about this kind of pant or short is that it's like putting on an exoskeleton, a dynamic exoskeleton. And the thing is about your own connective tissue and fascia and skin is that it was built for you, that you evolved, you've grown into this suit. And so adding on an external layer Here's a good example for someone to, to imagine. If you've ever worn a tight pair of jeans and then tried to squat down, what happened? You probably had to alter fundamentally how you moved. And that alteration of these movement patterns, especially in the training environment, can be not ideal. It, it puts in you know, some really strange 
sort of external load and information to the system that can potentially lead to people working around the problem. Right. That's oh, actually, that's interesting. That's actually what I thought when you said, because I've had a few running injuries which have been detailed, really in detail on this, that's on true. this podcast. Yeah. I've had com- compensatory injuries, and I know a lot of people, a lot of runners get those sorts of injuries because you're compensating for some sort of imbalance or something that's weak or whatever. And my first thought was I would never wear those because what it's going to do is throw off my gait in some way, and then, like, bam, I'm going to get runner's knee or something. You know, um, people have been squatting in very, very tight shorts for a long time. The powerlifters used to lift in jean shorts and kind of that sort of thing, squat pants suits. Wow. But that's sort of that sounds like a really, that sounds like a recipe for ripped shorts, ripped jean shorts. Oh, guaranteed, right? Multiple ply, heavy denim. And But, you know, in the long haul, what we saw was that, you know, people are wearing a specific, you know, brief, squat brief for a specific position, and it's designed to do a very specific thing, not a suit that does lots of different things. And if you can imagine, you know, if we're the multitude of positions that we can get our bodies in and that the role of your tissues and musculature changes based on your shape and the pants don't necessarily reflect that. So while they may work, you know, in a certain movement pattern, you know, what happens if you run faster? What happens if you're squatting? What happens if you're lunging? What, you know, and, and that, that is generally our concern is that we want, we want the person to feel what's going on underneath. So, you know, sometimes people do like a little light compression because it does help them become more positionally aware, but that's very different than this idea. That's interesting. I, you see, no, so it's funny you say that because uh, one of the times that I wore them, I like, I put them on to go out for a run and then, I don't know, something, something came up that stopped me. I ended up just kind of puttering around my apartment for like an hour before I left. And I did notice during that hour when I was just doing normal things, I did notice that I was moving like a little bit differently um, because of the pressure. And then I think once I start running, I kind of just, you know, after the first 30 seconds, I don't notice it. But because I was doing, you know, because it's a, a repetitive motion, but around the house when I was doing different types of motion, um, it did. I did notice that my body was responding to it in a different way. You know, I'm a big guy, and sometimes I wear little tiny jacket and I'm a big guy in a little jacket and if you've ever worn a suit coat and tried to like touch your face you know it's difficult to put your arms over your head and our concern is always that you know we have enough sort of noxious stimuli as human beings <laughs> we're sitting yeah. we wear high heel shoes we make a whole lot of decisions and sometimes you know in spite of our best intentions we don't need to make the system more complex. What we need to do is add simplicity to the system and, and degrees of freedom to the system. And what I would also postulate is that most people are missing critical hip ranges of motion and have stiff tissues already. And so what we're really doing is compounding an already, you know, a system that's already under significant internal tension. Right. Is, this, uh, is running what these are made for? Like, are these ideally for running? Because they're focused on the legs, I think it's running and squatting are kind of the two activities they're really targeted at. Mm-hmm. And so the the resistance bands, so they have like one that goes around your waist, and then there's two very big straps that go kind of from, uh, you know, from your the outside of your pelvis on both sides, go across your quads towards like the inside of your knees. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're really focused on your quads. I mean, that's definitely where I feel them the most. Kelly, no, I'm curious. So what is your thought on something like wearing ankle weights or something? I mean, does that also kind of have the same potential for negative feedbacks or is that something that's more targeted and can be useful you remember the phenomenon of heavy hands where you like ran with these carrying three pound weights and what we see is that over time especially in high repetition movement the you know we start to fatigue because we're, we're these, these positions weren't intended to be doing that and all of a sudden we see a lot of very strange 
movement patterns of the shoulder. You know, people's hip flexors are working very hard. You know, imagine running through sand, you know, dragging your foot every step, and all of a sudden, I, I guarantee you, your hip flexors would cook in a matter of moments. And, and I mean, that's maybe not the yeah. best way to train a running, running shape, a running pattern. Right. Right. It seems almost like in the case of a baseball bat, you're making the baseball bat heavier, but that's a very specific movement that you're training. Whereas like something like running, you're not necessarily, you're not necessarily like training your, your running better. You're just making it different. Well, the other piece around that is we have to look at sort of the duty cycles or loading cycles. And in, in about a 400 meter run, you'll typically see about 350 or so steps. So we have 350 loads in a 400-meter run, and very few people only run 400 meters. So let right. me do the math on that, and a little 5K jog really ends up being a lot of duty cycles versus count the number of batting donut swings you'll see, and maybe it's five, maybe it's six, maybe it's seven. And even then, you know, I think that they're using it for a very specific reason. Batting donut for us has actually become you know, an analogy, a metaphor for, you know, making yourself suck. <laughs> Let's, uh, you know, this, this is like a, a drag, you know, and someone, someone's holding you back. You know, they're like a batting donut of a friend. And, um, you know, I, th- I, <laughs> think, use that. I, think, I think what we really need to do is say, hey, look, you know, there are better ways to put resistance into the system, including running up a hill or running faster or running at higher tempo. And I think what we get out of this is, again, a lot of misplaced precision. The, the market, again, around compression is very good. And right. you know, if you're jumping on a jet plane, I think you, I, I think you put the nail on the head. massive difference for sleeping. All of our professional teams, when they're, as soon as they're done playing, you have them wear some compression pants back on the plane. You know, but maybe this is one of those you know, places where we've taken it too far. You know, and I, I know that people are well-intentioned, but it's probably maybe not the best expression of, of, of moving well and getting a desired effect. So for you, you're thinking, don't put these on to exercise, put them on after you exercise, and then just chill out in your house in them. Yeah, and then maybe you know, there are some benefits to that, you know, the higher compression. What we're really seeing in the, in the, around the quadriceps, et cetera, et cetera, is that maybe we're giving and, some okay. fascial support. So it could be like wearing, you know, it, you know there's a lot of placebo effect from the KT taping or kinetic taping that people do. And, you know, oh, yeah. and maybe that, that's some of the thing. If people are getting some feedback, they feel good. You know, a lot of the athletes we work with, when they wear very overly tight garments, they actually feel like there's a lot of noxious stimulus back in. It doesn't feel very good. But, you know, that's, that's individual. The bottom line is that there are certainly better ways to move. And any time I'm exerting, you know, um, an, a, a sort of an exoskeleton on top of the body, which is a very complex, self-equalizing, dynamic, energy-storing, beautiful biologic wet machine. You know, I don't think that we can make pants that fits everyone's physiology correctly. And, right. and that's where I start to see a lot of, you know, maybe you could, you could pay a million dollars to have someone to make you the perfect pair of pants. But that would also change based on, you know, are you too stiff? Are you tired from yesterday? Versus sort of this one size fits all over. So maybe they could rebrand these as compression lounge pants with resistance. <laughs> and then, and then we're good instead. to go. Yeah. You know, one of the things that we always ask, and, you know, this is the last idea, is that, you know, do these things scale? Do these technologies scale? You know, is this the best use of our time and our resources? You know, could we be putting that energy or that thinking towards a, a more efficient training stimulus. And I, I think that's sometimes people get really lost 
in the, the minutiae because there's so much interesting technology. There's so much new new fabric, you know, and, and we get lost with the, the concept of what we should be doing or the most effective way between A and B. And sometimes we get, we get spun out on these little things and, you know, maybe it makes no difference at all. And, uh, you know, it's difficult to tell. What I can tell you is that the best runners on the planet, we know a lot of them, they wouldn't wear these pants. <laughs> uh, well, that's a pretty strong uh, absence of endorsement, I think. Yeah, and can I actually ask one more thing? Um, so, yeah, if I, you know, if I, if I stop wearing these things, but I want to kind of replace them with something else to, you know, intensify, you know, some of my training runs. You mentioned running up a hill or running, running hills. Are there any other uh, techniques that you recommend? Yeah, well, you know, one of the things that we're, when we look at running, we should be not just looking at running as I am a piece of meat trying to do more work. You know, if you if you want to kill yourself, go to SoulCycle, jump on a bike, which is which is very skill based, and you will suffer immensely. But running is the human skill; it's the thing that makes us human and sort of defines our humanity to be able to run long distances. is why we have a heel cord that stores so much energy. And what ends up happening then sometimes is, you know, we should be looking at running as a skill. And one of the ways to improve our skill is to, is to add speed. And so, you know, reducing rest, increasing tempo, these are all ways of improving our mechanics and improving the stimulus. This is making me want to go for a run. Yeah. And you know what the other thing that's nice about just improving, you know, increasing your tempo or running hills is that it doesn't cost $95 and you don't have to go to the laundry. Given what you know now, would you buy these? Given what I know now, I would not buy them. Um, I mean, it's one of those things where it's like, I never know how much is a placebo effect. I could feel that they were tightening, like tamping down. I was pretty convinced it was doing something. Yeah. I don't feel like I necessarily ran faster or slower while I was wearing them. Mm -hmm. Um, But... I don't own any other compression shorts, and I thought if I were going to buy some, maybe I'd buy these, but $90, $95 seemed a little steep. Well, are you going to stop using them? There's another question, since you do have them already. Um, I'll probably wear, I don't know. I'll probably wear them. I didn't sound like there was an injury risk, and right. if it doesn't seem like it's messing up my form, I don't know why to stop. Maybe, they're perf- maybe you are the person that these are perfectly designed for. That could be. You're the one. Yeah. Wow. Well, I mean, look Congratulations. At them. You're wearing them. <laughs> oh, my God. He's pulling down his pants in the office. Um, I'm calling HR, but uh, they, don't do that. They look nice. I was. <laughs> so that's our show. The most useful podcast ever is produced by the staff of Popular Mechanics and edited by Jack Dillon. We'd like to thank Sarah Bentley and Andy Bowers from Panoply, and Popular Mechanics editor in chief Ryan D'Agostino. Please subscribe to our show on iTunes, and while you're there, leave us a comment. We'd love to know what you think. You should check out our website, popularmechanics.com. While you're there, you can subscribe to the print and digital edition of Popular Mechanics magazine for just $13.99 a year. I'm Jacqueline Detweiler. Thanks for listening. I feel there is magic.